Hello and welcome to the Poetry Exchange. I'm Fiona Bennett. And I'm Michael Schaefer. How are you, Michael? I'm really well, thank you, Fee. Uh, I'm in Madrid, um, having a lovely time. Uh, last time we did this, we were in the same room, um, but now we're back to, to the Zoom call and the screens. Yeah, I think we shouldn't really say any more about the state of where we're at with any level of anything in the world because it all changes every day and half a minute later it's different so there we are but what we do know and what is a given and a fixed statistic Michael is that this is our 50th episode. (laughs) Yes indeed that is the most important statistic uh, of the day Fiona. 50 episodes well um, that's quite a thing isn't it? It is. It is. I think if it was a podcast going and to reach that milestone, I think is, uh, yeah, something worthy of celebration. Yeah, definitely. And um, yeah, it's just incredible to to think of the the journey that's taken place across the time of, of, of creating those 50 episodes, the conversations. And of course, there's been many conversations alongside those 50 which don't always come as, as podcasts because, you know, the project is bigger than the podcast. But, mm. yeah, it's wonderful. It's wonderful to be celebrating that because it's a month of poetry celebration, really, which, of course, started with National Poetry Day on October the 1st. And it was great to do uh, to do what we love to do on National Poetry Day, which is to basically talk to people about the poem that's been a friend to them and to have some new encounters. That was... Um, that was really wonderful. Yeah, it really was. Uh, I was uh, I was sorry to to miss out on those on on well gel, as the kids say. However, you didn't miss out on the conversation that we're going to be sharing this month. I certainly didn't. Fee, it felt appropriate for us to come out with uh, a bit of a banger on our fiftieth. Uh, and in the month of National Poetry Day. And I think that's what we've got. I think that's what we can offer our listeners this month. A bit of a banger. (laughs) A very special episode with the fantastic actor and uh, person, Brian Cox, um, who most recently has been picking up awards. I think he won a Golden Globe for his performance as Logan Roy in Succession. Uh, And uh, the show itself won a whole bunch of Emmys recently. And it was just a, a, a terrific conversation. I was so lucky to have had the chance to meet, albeit virtually, Brian and to hear about his poems. Yeah, he was a bit cheeky there, wasn't he? He broke the rule, Michael. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah. we, we, we decided to allow that. We made an honourable exception. We did. So you'll be listening to myself and Michael talking about... A Fond Kiss by Robert Burns and I Am by John Clare. The poems that have been friends to Brian. So I found two poems which I wanted to talk to you about. One is a very romantic poem by Burns. And then the other poem is a real favourite of mine, which is this poem by John Clare. And John Clare is really interesting because he, like Burns, was a peasant. He was a farmer poet. And he wrote this poem late on. He was in his 50s. So it's quite fascinating to the psychological influences that went on and the freedom that went on that came through peasant poetry and how it affected everybody. It's just fantastic to even begin to hear you talk about them 
we usually only do have one poem. Somebody brings the poem that's been a friend to them. But we were delighted to have two coming with you, Brian. And as you say, it's a fascinating choice that you've made in bringing this this pair of poems from these two writers. It goes back to really when I first went to drama school, you know, and I was exposed to poetry, particularly Dylan Thomas. So there was a there was a great deal of um, a lot of Dylan Thomas readings because he's so kind of uh, verbose and he, you know he's wonderful to read. And of course Burns is like he's our national poet, and uh, and and there's so many great reasons for him being our national poet. You know, having done Shakespeare you know that sound and rhythm, word and rhythm and sense are very much interlinked. So there's a sort of a, a kind of visceral thing about poetry in that way. Mm -hmm. And that's why poetry do remain one's friends, you know, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. of that very thing, that sort of visceral, you know, it's like singing, you know, it, does, mm -hmm. it just makes a huge, huge difference to you, you know. I was going to ask if you would mind reading both the poems for us. I think that would be really fabulous. Thank I'll, you. I'll, read, I'll read the Burns first. A fond kiss, and then we sever. A farewell, and then forever. Deep in heart-wrung tears, I'll pledge thee. Warring sighs and groans, I'll wage thee. Who shall say that fortune grieves him? While the star of hope, she leaves him? Me? Nature for twinkle lights me, dark despair around benights me. I'll ne'er blame my partial fancy, nothing could resist my Nancy, but to see her was to love her, love but her and love forever. Had we never loved so kindly, had we never loved so blindly, never met or never parted, we had ne'er been broken hearted. Fare thee weel, thou first and fairest, fare thee weel, Thou best and dearest, thine be ilka joy and treasure, peace, enjoyment, love and pleasure. A fond kiss and then we sever. A farewell, alas, forever. Deep in heart wrung tears I'll pledge thee. Warring sighs and groans I'll wage thee. So that's that's the burns. Oh, <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it's giving me goosebumps. <laughs> it's just fantastic. I think also because of hearing it so often sung, it's fantastic to hear it read and to hear it read so well. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I also think that poems need to be read out loud. You know, I, I really do feel that. And it's quite visceral, you know, because it's usually about incredible sort of emotion and psychological states. So uh, I'll read the, um, the John Clare Again, a fascinating poet from Northamptonshire. And um, he was tormented uh, because he was a real peasant. I mean, he didn't even have, he didn't even have the conditions that Burns had. He was actually slightly more deprived than Burns. And yet he survived and made this amazing stuff. And then at this point, when he's in his 50s, he writes this poem and tells a, a very deep story about his fragile mental state. I am, yet what I am, none cares or knows. My friends forsake me like a memory lost. 
I am the self-consumer of my woes. They rise and vanish in oblivious host, like shadows in love's frenzied stifled throes. And yet I am, and live like vapors tossed into the nothingness of scorn and noise, into the living sea of waking dreams, where there is neither sense of life or joys, but the vast shipwreck of my life's esteems. Even the dearest that I loved the best are strange, nay, rather stranger than the rest. I long for scenes where man hath never trod, a place where woman never smiled or wept, there to abide with my creator, God, and sleep as I in childhood sweetly slept, untroubling and untroubled where I lie, the grass below, above the vaulted sky. Thank you. Great poet, great poem. Yeah. This is the first time I've heard of him. I haven't come across him before. Oh, you must must read him because he's a, he was a kind of lost poet in one way. And in the 60s, he was the poet that kept popping up because of this poem, just this one poem, because it is all about who am I, what am I, I am. You know, it's such a sort of simple thing that he asks. And of course, it comes down to the, the vicissitudes of his life, but also the kind of shaping you know, the crab and kib confined element of, of being alive. And he sums that up so brilliantly, but he does it in iambic form. And that's what's so interesting about, um, about Claire, because he's not a, he comes from a very, very ignorant background. He's not a classical in any way, but he comes to this form quite late on. And then this goal scoring poem is quite astonishing. The anguish in it is so physically expressed, isn't it? I, I think so. I, and I think it is about crisis. And, and it, is, it is to do with the thwarting of the artistic imperative, that he has struggled all the time to fight against this constant, because of the land, because of the work he's had to do, because of being in the soil and all that. And it's not, it's not harmonious like a lot of these uh, the nature poems are. You know, he understands the kind of, you know, the untroubled and untroubling, where I lie, the grass below, above the vaulted sky. He understands that. He understands it in one sense, but he has to go through all this other stuff. You know, this kind of emotional stuff, which is, in one sense, very alien to him. But in the other sense, it's the very core of who he is. And coming to the core of who he is, is is very painful. And therefore, he writes this poem and he writes it in form, in shape. And that's, it's quite an achievement. Am I right in saying that you came across this poem in the 60s as yeah. a young man? Yeah. This is a really interesting poem for a young man to latch onto, it seems to me. Well, I, I think that, you know, the great thing about the 60s, uh, and this is where people kind of underestimated in a way. There was a lot of questions being asked. And of course, again, these guys, you know, where they didn't have the social mobility that happened in the 60s. And of course, subsequently, we haven't had that social mobility. And they're also kind of essentially, um, they are victims of feudalism. That's the kind of context in which these people write. Uh, Burns you know, with a kind of merry cry of fuck it, just wrote these amazing lyric poets and tossed them off. 
Claire was much more troubled and much more painful uh, in a way because he was quintessentially English as opposed to Burns, who was quintessentially a Celt, so he had all that other freedom. Whereas the English thing is always, the English sensibility has always been thwarted in a much more, much more subtle way, really, I think. And that's why I think that in the 60s, we were beginning to examine writing in a much more um, holistic and immediate sense, that how it affected us, how these images affected you, particularly from an acting point of view. And... Uh, Claire just does it with this poem. He just does it. And it also helps because it's iambic. So it, the rhythm that, especially if you're working in Shakespeare, you know the rhythm straight away. You go, oh, God. And in the 60s, we were introduced to these poems. You know, we had a very good poetry classes at Lambda, where I was a student. And we did a, a, an hour every week on poetry. And it was, it was a fantastic way of really understanding language and the value of it, you know. Were you exposed to to poetry as a uh, as a younger man at home growing no, up? not at all, not at all. In school, there was probably a little bit of it. I mean, Burns, yes. If One Kiss is, a, is probably one of the great love poems of all time. But, you know, all lang syne, you know, uh, should all acquaintance be forgot. I mean, we that was something that we created where we came from. And it's become a world theme, you know, all lang syne. Most, most people don't even know what all lang syne means, you know. But so that, we did, I did have that kind of relationship to the poetry, and, and certainly to Burns. And then you see, and my father-in-law, who was, a, who was a classic scholar, his belief was that he was the greatest lyric poet of the of English, Scottish language. I mean, it's fantastic to, to experience your passion for these poems. It makes me wonder whether you given that you didn't have poetry as a young man in your life, when you were kind of veering towards acting, I'm sure that language was a part of that somewhere. I, I, absolutely, because, you know, one's vocabulary, it, it, and this is what is such an achievement of Claire alone, because his vocabulary would have been very narrow, and he really would have had to learn a vocabulary. And that's what I had to do the same, you know, because I came from a certain background. I didn't study the classics. I wasn't thrown to a, a you know, a classical environment where I could have the, all this came to me very easily. And so one had to kind of build it up over the years. And I was very lucky to be a student of this in the 60s because I was brought in from Scotland and I was welcomed and I was encouraged, you know, to be who I was. And that's what social mobility did to you, that you said, oh, you are, you're from there. That's fine. Be from there. Whereas I was under the misapprehension that I hadn't to be from there when I came, you know, when I came to, to study first, I thought, oh, I've got to learn how to throw all this off. And, and to a certain extent I did. But at the same time, I've learned to retune myself to a kind of, a kind of musicality, really, of, of particularly in the, in the Scots, Scots language. I'm not landing anybody in it, I don't think. Um, but, you know, some actor friends of mine, I definitely know, did have an acting experience, which was to kind of uh, have to get rid of their yeah. innate connection in the mouth, literally yeah. in the mouth, yeah. you know, the instrument to the word, and had that kind of ripped out of them. Yeah, there was an element of that which was true, but there was also a care about understanding. For instance, 
to understand or receive pronunciation was an interesting thing for me. I thought it was a, a discipline that you had to talk standard English. But actually, it's interesting that the standard English vowel sounds has something like 24 vowel sounds, where the Celtic tones, the Irish, the Welsh, have only got about 13, 14. They don't, they don't have the same range. So the great joy of trying to learn to, how to do standard English was the fact that my range was increasing. So that was all right, you know, because I, when I came to London when I was 17, I mean, I had an accent that you could cut with an eye. I mean, no, nobody could understand how I spoke, you know. So I had to learn how to speak. But also, I think Vernon Miles used to talk about your head voice and your heart voice, as long as your head voice doesn't destroy your heart voice. Oh, that's, that's lovely. That's brilliant, isn't it? And uh, in the Clare, even that thought, actually, of the head voice and the heart voice, which in a sense... In some ways, there's a sort of argument going on between the two of them in the poem, isn't Absolutely. there? Absolutely. And he acknowledges both their power, you know, and he acknowledges also how, as a writer, their power has served him. Presumably, Brian, there was something of your heart that kind of leapt to, to these two poets in particular, I guess, I don't know if you saw something of yourself coming from a working class background, you were kind of going, oh my gosh, look, these, these guys, they've, they've transcended that. That's absolutely true. That's exactly what happened, how they transcended. You know, and it's, it's, it's one of the curses of being in the British Isles. It's this feudal thing, you know, it's something I've thought of all my life of, of you are, all, you are required to be that and you are regarded as that and to make any bridge is very very hard you know because you're and it's a system which i find repellent quite frankly um and uh, it still goes on in a much more invisible way and and of course it, one of the things it does is it does cramp the expression you know in a way you're very grateful for the the classical basis just in terms of a discipline and shakespeare's been like that for me you know i come back to shakespeare all the time he is probably probably poetically as, as fine a writer as we have, we have ever had. I wondered if you might bring some Shakespeare, actually. Well, I nearly did. I, ne I nearly brought a sonnet. And, and you said that the, 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 poet, the poem that was a friend to you, well, these two are friends of mine, but the, the first poem I ever remember was Jim, uh, Hilaire Belloc. And, uh, you know, the humorous poet, it, that kind of poetry was something that was out of my grasp and yet it's it, it registered as with a, a tiny child you know i i think i was about six when i heard there was a boy whose name was jim his friends were very good to him they gave him tea and cakes and jam and you know so that that kind of freewheeling that jim does and of course it's a cautionary tale because jim goes away from his nurse and gets eaten by a lion you know and it's very very funny but it's very very dark at the same time and uh, that was my friend poem from the word go and then of these other poems of course became they outbid them as friends and of course we have different friends for different uh, for different occasions and uh, fulfill different things within us yeah. absolutely absolutely and that's the great thing that's that's the great thing about the English language, uh, the range of it is, is undeniable. You know, I, every kind of new wave that comes along has always been able to take the language and do the most extraordinary things with it. 
that's never been the problem. You know, there's, the social conditions may be the problem, but the language is never the problem. And it seems to me that in, in both of these poems, um, what's expressed is uh, there, there is a darkness. Yeah. And that darkness is also to do with, you know, it goes right to the state of who the person is. Uh, in this case, both in terms of Burns and in terms of Claire, their own history. I guess you've not shied away from, from, from darkness in the parts you've played. If I think of Manhunter and, and oh, yeah. Lear and Titus and, uh, 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 and, of course, in Succession, these are not necessarily men that you'd want to uh, have dinner with. No, not necessarily. But, uh, I mean, luckily enough, I only have dinner with them in my imagination. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't have any other truck with them. And they're great roles. You, you know, if you've played Macbeth and you've played Lear and you've played Titus Andronicus, you get to understand a, a huge dimension on, on language, but also on just where the fatal flaw is, you know. And so somebody like Logan is very rich in that because Logan is really, he's not trammeled by things. Um, you know, his God is his favorite Shakespeare quote is uh, take the fucking money, which of course I can't remember which play that's from, <laughs> but it's, it's interesting that he is not, um, he's, he's much more unadorned, you know, he, do, he doesn't, he's very rich. He does that, but none of it means anything to him except power, except his position. As you two were talking, I was starting to try to think what would be the poem that Logan Roy would either be writing or reading. It would probably, his poem, you mean Logan Roy's poem, it would probably be uh, Philip um, Larkin. It would probably be the fuck you up your mum and dad, you know. <laughs> I, yeah. I think that would be, that would be his go-to poem because that's a sentiment he would completely understand, you know. It's sort of heartbreaking that I am. I, I keep, as you're talking, I'm, I'm looking through it here, Brian, and it's... This is a man in, in anguish, isn't oh, it? Oh, yeah. But he's had this life. He's had this tough life, you know. Those conditions have always been the conditions in which art has thrived. And uh, I think in the 60s, it was more acute. And, and, you, and your sense of it was very strong. A lot of poetry is driven by being out of place, by not being there, not, you know, not being quite allowed in, being kept separate, you know, being alienated. And there's so much of poetry that is about that. Yeah, some incredible images. I mean, the self-consume, I am the self-consumer of, of my, my woes. I mean, what about that? It's amazing, it, isn't it? it? It is extraordinary. I am the self-consumer of my woes. And it's so accurate and so painfully accurate. You know, you know exactly what he's doing because he's, he's, you know, he, he can't complain. He's not allowed to complain the conditions because he can see that people are working hard and yet he's thwarted by that and therefore he self-consumes his own woes. Mm, mm. And then he said, Yet I am and live like vapours tossed into the nothingness of scorn and noise. Yeah, yeah. Into the living sea of waking dreams. Yeah, it's incredible stuff. Yeah, yeah, it, it really is. I remember when I discovered this poem, I couldn't quite believe it. And I also couldn't quite believe it had been written when it had been written because the modernity of it is so overwhelmingly. But then you realize that this is the pulse that was going on at that period. And then if you look at the history of it, you can see how it, was, how it developed and how it became rather florid with the Shelley and, and Keats. But even 
then when they're at their simplest, they are incredible. But this man just goes straight directly to the point. Because we focused a lot on the point at which you, you kind of connected with these poems, Brian, I'm just wondering about how poetry is for you now in your life. Yeah. Well, you see, the, the, the great thing about a programme like yours is it, 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 it retunes you in a way. And sometimes you're tuned out because of just circumstance. And then, of course, once I've reconnected, it, it's like a door opens and I go, oh, I forgot that was over there. I forgot about that room. Burns has never been far away from me. Afon Kiss has always been very close to me. But then going back to this man, to Claire, who I do think is one of the great lost poets, you see the narrative of where they fitted into your life and where it came, which is what we've been talking about, really, of where, that, where the roots of these poems are. And of course, they'll never go away. You, you may not be working every day, but they don't go away. I mean, this program sort of opened a door for me again, a door of a room that was there, and all the stuff is there, and I went into it, and of course, it all comes back, you know, like a, like a huge tidal wave. Well, I'm really, really pleased that we've been able to offer you that. That's fantastic. <laughs> um, we always, we always ask our guests, um, you know, this the idea of a, of a poem as a friend. And if you could say what kind of a friend uh, each of these poems is to you, how would you categorise them? Well, they are reminders. They are friends who remind you of certain things which you sometimes forget and uh, you know the, the the beauty of of the lyricism of Burns is just you know there's a joyousness in his writing you know he's like a an old pal coming back and reminding you about something and it's the same with the the Claire you know it, it reminds you of of the not so the more brutal aspects of one's life. The friend who sort of reminds you of the notion of despair, who kind of says, you know, don't get too cocky. (laughs) Don't get too in love with yourself. Don't get carried away with yourself. Don't get carried away, exactly. And, 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 And that's what a poem like I Am does, because it just says, you know, the human condition is very fragile. Don't forget it. And it's, and you need a pal to remind you of that, you know. John Clare, I am. I am. Yet what I am, none cares or knows. My friends forsake me like a memory lost. I am the self-consumer of my woes. They rise and vanish in oblivious host, like shadows in love's frenzied, stifled throes. And yet I am, and live, like vapours tossed into the nothingness of scorn and noise, into the living sea of waking dreams, where there is neither sense of life or joys, but the vast shipwreck of my life's esteems. Even the dearest that I loved the best are strange, nay, rather, stranger than the rest. I long for scenes where man hath never trod, a place where woman never smiled or wept, 
there to abide with my Creator, God. And sleep as I in childhood sweetly slept, untroubling and untroubled where I lie, the grass below, above the vaulted sky. That was Michael with the gift recording of I Am by John Clare. Uh, and just to say, again, massive thanks to Brian for showing up and uh, offering us such a great conversation and sharing those brilliant poems with us. I absolutely love his reading of A Fond Kiss. Blows me away, Fee. Yeah, and I mean, I'm going to sort of hold my hand up here that I, you know, I felt a bit, because he did bring us two poems, that we didn't spend so long talking about A Fond Kiss as we did talking about I Am. Um, But I think that was partly because I actually couldn't speak after he'd read it. (laughs) No, I think you can hear that on the episode as well. (laughs) Pair of us are both a bit stunned by it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, thank you, Brian. And, of course, I Am by John Clare, a phenomenal poem and phenomenal poet. And I'm not going to sort of say too much about that here, but we will, as we always do, put the full text of the poem on the description page and also a link to the biography of John Clare which I think is a really interesting read especially alongside some of the things that Brian was talking about in terms of voice and kind of coming into your being and also John Clare a poet that broke the mould in much the same way as you might say Brian Cox has so it's a, a wonderful thing. Just for people that uh, might be listening to to the podcast uh, for the first time, uh, this is our 50th episode. There are 49 others that you could listen to. Um, You can find them in your podcast catcher of choice or on our website, poetryexchange.co.uk. We've got all of the archive there. So dive in uh, and find some others that you enjoy. So 50 already. And I'm excited, Michael, to think about the next 50 you know there's who knows who will walk through our door wherever we might be and I really look forward to us being in a physical place uh, and opening the door of some library or festival somewhere before too long and welcoming people in in person and catching more conversations with poems as friends and If you are able to help us do that by making a donation, however small, it really does help us continue to do this work. Super aware, there's an awful lot for people to be thinking about donating to at the moment. And I know that there's not a lot of it around, so appreciate that. But if anybody has the ability to do that and give us a hand, we really, really will appreciate it and promise to make good use of it in meeting up with people and having these conversations. So, Michael, it's great that in uh, a few days' time we're going to have the chance to be part of the digital version of the Manchester Literature Festival. Uh, Delighted to have been invited by them to have some conversations as part of their fantastic programme. And if you're interested in having a festival experience wherever you may be, you can take part. So do head to their website and take a look at the full programme. 
That's about all we've got time for this month. I, I, I raise a, a virtual glass of bubbly to you, Fee, for our 50 episodes. Until next time, thank you for listening. Thank you.